You're listening to Yale Radio WYBC. This is Brainerd Carey with the lives of the artists, architects, curators, and more. Today on our show, I'm talking with David Winner. David, thanks so much for being with me today. Thanks so much for having me. David, we talked once before um, uh, last year. We talked about um, a, a number of things, and uh, including enemy combatant, your novel, but we also talked about Dorley. So without, there'll be a link to that interview here so that listeners can hear that as well. But today we're talking about your upcoming book, Master Lovers, which is coming out in a few weeks. Is that correct? Exactly, exactly, yeah. So let's talk about that because this also comes from, you know, the story of, of your uh, great aunt, Dorley. Doesn't it? It, it absolutely that that's what it's about. Um, just a little a background. I know it's in the other interview. Is that my great aunt um, was a figure in the music world throughout a lot of the, the 20th century. Um, she was close with um, Maria Callas and Bernstein, and um, she married my great uncle Dario in the late 30s, early 40s. But I didn't know much about her romantic life before then. Um, but after she died, I discovered in her apartment, hidden in nooks and crannies, all these different love letters from different men in from the 1950s. Um, and the book Master Lovers um, tries to tell Dorley's story um, and tries to imagine the stories of these love affairs because um, I only have um, their words to her, so I had to kind of invent what actually happened in, in, the, in the love affairs. I have her her um, letters to her, Dorley's letters to her mother. Um, Dorley's um, diary she wrote when she was young, but generally the, the actual arc of these love affairs I had to create. Um, um, and um, one thing that's happened since the last time we spoke um, is that the, the sort of the, the tone of the book has begun to shift a little bit. The more sort of strange and uncomfortable associations I've, I've learned. Um, as one um, is that one of her lovers, um, John Franklin Carter, um, who, if you look him up, um, you'll find that he he worked with FDR. He was a journalist. He wrote um, sort of corny murder mysteries. Um, but um, it was actually my wife Angela who thought to look him up in the New York Times archive and found a story from 1932 claiming that um, Goering had deputized him to run a quote unquote Hitler's party against FDR. Um, and I won't uh, go into the whole, my sort of in incompetent um, researching, but after a bunch of sort of going back and forth, I realized that wasn't exactly true. But I, I did find his um, wife, he has a small archive in, at the University of Wyoming. Um, and there I found his wife's diary. And um, he and his wife were taken around Germany in 1932 by this guy named Ernst Putzi Hansteingel, who was Hitler's press secretary. And they went to a Hitler rally, which his wife called quite a good show. They had a, they were, they went basically sort of attended the, the fall of the Reichstag, which they seemed to find thrilling. Um, so I, I began to wonder if he, who this John Franklin Carter was, if he, even though he wasn't actually running a Nazi party, he wasn't actually, um, asked by Gehring to do that, um, I began to get more curious about him. 
particularly, and I was just going back and forth um, through the letters, um, and I found that um, something I hadn't actually noticed before, that he got a letter from a guy named George Virek, um, another German person living living on the United States in the 30s, who um, told Carter that he was on a congressional list of people with um, potential Nazi, potential German loyalties. Um, and I actually that 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 you know report, um, the Dixing report is, is is available right online, and I found that he actually was not listed. But um, I learned this Virick, who was obviously very close to to, uh, to John Franklin Carter, my my aunt's lover, um, was was focused on a lot in Rachel Maddow's Ultra podcast um, about German infiltration in the United States that came out about um, this time last year, 2022. And this Virek, she actually called the, the top banana of German infiltrators. Um, so I sort of had him kind of in the room with Nazis, and I um, was trying to figure out more about him. And that's when I got the idea to get his FBI file. Um, and I had never applied for an FBI file. I had no idea how that worked. And I was yeah, that's kind of, fascinating. You know, I mean, the, the research is just fascinating. Yeah. So you thank you, you apply for an FBI it, it, file. Right, and it's kind of funny in my my tremendous incompetence, actually, because um, they gave me the option to expedite it, and I thought, of course, why wouldn't I expedite it? But it turns out they only expedite these things if, like, you think your your neighbor is a terrorist or about to like, shoot up a school or something, unless it's a pressing reason, and not, you know, this person who died in 1967. Um, you know, obviously that can't be pressing. So they first they rejected my request, um, and I spoke to a, to a friend of my uncle, who's actually a, a, a journalist for, for many, many years, um, who's requested many FBI files, and he, he sort of suggested, like, they're, they're never going to send you anything, forget it. But once I requested it and did not expedite it, it arrived right away, and it's a crazy document. Have you ever looked at an FBI file? I never have, but yeah, I imagine these things that are redacted, full of black lines or something. I think that there, this was actually, I think it's because John Franklin Carter was never that important. Um, it really wasn't redacted. It was kind of all there. And it's just in a crazy list of things. Um, one thing, um, most of it involves his work spying for Roosevelt. Um, Roosevelt um, apparently kind of um, at the beginning of the war or before the war, the Second World War, sort of actually recruited his own spies. So there, there was, you know, there was a, the, it was before the days of the CIA, but there was the State Department, um, there was naval intelligence, there were all these sort of official channels, but there were also, you know, just these kind of random freelance spies, including Carter, um, and, and Carter investigated basically these sort of useless things, as far as I can tell, that, that he thought that the, the, the French community in Trinidad, um, which I guess fled the Haitian Revolution, I, I, um, were um, possibly exposed to Axis propaganda. So he sent someone down to Trinidad to somehow investigate the French community. He sent someone down to, 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 to the Cafe Society nightclub, which I wonder whether that was sort of held in suspicion because it was integrated. They were both black and white performers, which may have made it suspicious to people. Anyway, he sent someone to the Cafe Society nightclub who um, racked up a $500 bill there in something like 1940, as you can only imagine. And he tried, and Carter tried to get J. Edgar Hoover to pay for it. Um, 
and Jagger Hoover absolutely refused. And um, once, and Jagger Hoover is a constant presence in these FBI files. Um, it's, he is much more was much more sort of hands on, at least of that era, than I would ever imagine. He's all over the place, and he couldn't stand um, John Franklin Carter, my my aunt's lover. He thought he was just as ridiculous a person. I had this quote from him from the files. He says, um, "We know Carter well and most unfavorably. He is a crackpot, but a persistent busybody, bitten with the Sherlock Holmes bug and plagued with a super exaggerated ego." Um, um, so the, 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 all this, yeah. So basically, um, and I've, um, no one has written a biography of Carter, but I've, I've, um, I've had people written about that period, and, and people sort of concluding that what Carter was trying to investigate was all kind of irrelevant until um, he ended up, you know, with one of the most important and significant roles, which was in the lead up to Pearl Harbor and after Pearl Harbor. It was actually John Franklin Carter who was um, tasked by Roosevelt with somehow investigating the Japanese American community in California um, to decide how dangerous they were, how loyal or disloyal they were. Um, and he hired this guy, Curtis Munson, um, to, and Curtis Munson um, went to California um, talked to a lot of people, a lot of Japanese Americans and Japanese people, and wrote a report um, called the Munson Report. And it's full of um, prejudice, stereotyping, derogative language for Japanese people. But the conclusion was, pretty, was, kind of, was unwavering that, that, that the Japanese community was extremely loyal, that their loyalty was very much to um, the United States, um, not to um, Japan. Um, and here's the, the, sort of the, 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 the crazy, terrible thing that Carter did is that Carter sent this to FDR, but he sent this with a misleading sort of executive summary that doesn't get across the basic loyalty of the Japanese community. And that's in that sort of indirect sense, um, he was responsible for the internment camps. Um, I mean, that, that's an exaggeration, wow. of course. I mean... Probably Roosevelt would have done it anyway. There was tremendous pressure on him, xenophobic pressure on him um, to do it. But, but this um, misleading executive summary um, doesn't help. I had, I've not been able to find it exactly. I just had be able to find several people. Some, um, there's someone who wrote, wrote a, a book about the, the camps and the lead-up to the camps, the internment camps, and I felt that it was completely missing, missing the point. Um, um, so... And the, the the Carter story is so um, sort of strange and terrible and funny. He he um, um, did do something good. He he did um, along with this man Ringel and Munson. Um, seems sort of like the Three Stooges. Um, they did actually try. That they wrote another report, um, and there was a lot of not surprisingly, but tragically, a lot of anti anti Japanese violence in California after Pearl Harbor. Um, and they did try, and Carter, this is something obviously decent and positive that Carter did, he did try to get um, the, the um, State Department to intervene in some way to protect Japanese Americans. But by this point, sort of the engines were in motion, the war was beginning, and that just didn't, didn't happen. Um, and um, Carter also wrote um, 
as I mentioned, wrote sort of corny murder mysteries. He wrote, also wrote these sort of political political books, um, which are sort of fictionalized adaptations of his own career. Um, can't imagine how why people publish these books, but they did. Um, anyway, in, in one of his books, um, um, written a few years after after Roosevelt's death, um, he he has himself um, basically a fictional version of Camp fictionalized Camp David um, speaking to FDR about the internment camps and has him sort of boldly has himself boldly criticizing FDR and standing up to FDR and sort of talking talking FDR you know sense into FDR which obviously he he never did right but a kind of way of rewriting history himself rewriting history himself i mean that there the, the, i i haven't been able to go, make it very far into his books because they're kind of dreadful um but there there's several examples of this when you know where he would um you know um have a fictionalized version of history and sort of make himself the make himself the hero um Yes, yeah, so I mean, it's such fascinating details you found historically. You know, the, the title you. of the book, Master Lovers, is, is essentially alluding to all of these men that that, yes. that Dorley has, has known, right? Um, yeah, and it, the, the, the sort of conceit of the, of the title is that when she was 17 or 18, Dorley wrote and actually published, um, remarkably enough, a book called Master Lovers of the World in which she tells these heightened, sentimentalized stories of Henry VIII, Louis XIV, Casanova, Gauguin, um, and they're they're her own master lovers, and they were quite awful. Like, I mean, she she romanticizes Henry VIII. Um, she sort of forgives. Um, she both addresses and forgives Gauguin's pedophilia, sort of racist pedophilia, um, in and. Um, so it's kind of funny. It's kind of interesting to realize that some of the actual men who were her own lovers were also complicated figures with dark, dark associations, um, kind of like her, her invented ones. Um, so, so that's so interesting. I mean, how and, and how are you going through all that, digesting all that? I mean, this is this is your great aunt, your late great aunt, yeah. and you're, you're and you're looking at a time capsule, the window in time, and that. You know, by today's um, lens viewpoint, that that seems both, you know, abhorrent to be giving Kogan right. a break for, for what he did. <laughs> right. um, but but are, are you looking at it differently? I mean, this is obviously through the lens of what was happening then, and obviously there there wouldn't be criticism yeah. for that kind of thing. Right? No, that there wouldn't have been. I mean, I, yeah, I feel. I mean, yes. I mean, I. Earlier versions of the book, um, I've been working on this book for so long, um, I think sentimentalized my, Dorley, my great aunt, and sort of evaded these things, but now I sort of run into them, I'm sort of um, addressing them more directly, but, you know, there there is that sort of fundamental question that keeps coming up over and over again in so many different contexts, but, you know, she was not, I don't think, a particularly bad for me. I, I loved her very much, and she was a really warm person, her attitudes were not at all unusual, but um, by today's standards, um, they're they're disturbing. I mean, I th- I think that Dorley did have um, a somewhat of a problem forgiving evil or forgiving. I mean, people who I mean, for example, another another probably the most morally questionable thing that she did um, was that she was um, and this is, this was 
guilt by association, not guilt on its own terms. She was very close with, um, you know, ex-Nazis in the music world after the Second World War. Um, and as a Jewish woman, and of course she was a Jewish woman, um, you know, Elizabeth Schwarzkopf is probably the, the biggest example, who was a major soprano of that era, who was most probably Goebbels' mistress. Um, and Dorley knew this, um, and it's... And my, my father once asked Dorley what she thought about this, and, and she, she made some kind of grand statement about somehow art and politics being different, which by any standard is a little bit hard to stomach when you're talking about, you know, um, a mass murderer's mistress. Um, so um, how, do you, how, do you, how do you absorb that? I mean, I, I recently read a book um, by Daryl Horn called uh, People yes. Love Dead Jews, and it was a... It was quite an extraordinary book, and there was a story of Varian Fry in there, who, you know, helped a lot of prominent uh, artists escape uh, the Nazis in, in Europe. And, you know, there's a whole kind of hard-to-understand psychology of how uh, the people who he even helped didn't want to acknowledge him afterwards. Um, you know, this it, it's so complex, this... This history yeah. is, you know, post World War II history. Um, you know, uh, so, so how, how do you look at that now? That seems like you're immersed in it, really, right? With, with all of this, yeah. with all the contradictions and the difficulties. Yeah, I mean, I, um, I, I guess I, I do make this find myself making this sort of instinctual separation between. I mean, I've, my all my other work writing before this has almost all been fiction. I'm sort of like, fiction is sort of what I'm, kind of the air I usually breathe, and I, I find myself, you know, almost thinking of the, the Dorley, my great-aunt Dorley, of this book that I've written for a bit of a fictional character, even though I'm portraying her as accurately as I can, and the real Dorley that I remember um, seems like very much of a separate figure, and that, that's a kind of a schizophrenic response, because obviously she, she was both. And these things are, in fact, true about her. But somehow, my my, my warm memories of her, um, you know, um, she would. My, I grew up in Charlottesville, but my parents and I would drive to New York around Christmas every year, and she, you know, give me enormous gingerbread houses. She'd take us to con to concerts and to restaurants, and it was all this kind of, you know, a wonderful experience in my childhood. That which somehow, you know, part of my brain is untainted by anything that I found out later. Um, so I didn't, I didn't go out making the separation, but I found myself kind of making the separation. Yeah, it's just it's just fascinating. Um, but it's exciting to talk to you about this book, and there'll be links in here so um, people can Thank also uh, learn more about it and, and, and pre-order or order the book. Um, is, is there anything else you want to say about the book that I that I should have asked? I mean, we could have, we could talk for the longest time about this. There's so many stories in here. We don't want to reveal them all. Is there anything else that you want to mention about the book? That um... well, I mean, um, I'm going to be corny and say probably I don't have time to to do anything but to reveal the book. But there is this crazy, crazy story of um, which I mentioned a little bit. Ernst Hamsteigel Putzi, the person who showed Carter and his wife around Germany. I followed his story as well, um, and it's totally, totally insane. Um, he he. Um, um, I, I, I'll just stop there. There's an, another crazy thing that came out of the book. Oh, well, here's what I wanted to say, actually. Um, 
to, to close this off, I guess. Um, this, reading, doing the research for this book, um, landing on this Putzi Hansteingel, who was my great aunt's lover's friend, landed me with this strange detail that Putzi's son, um, who is American, um, was teaching in, I think, the history department in Brooklyn College in the 1950s. So in, at, Brooklyn, at the hugely Jewish Brooklyn College of the early 1950s, um, Putzi's son, who is actually Hitler's godson, was teaching. So Hitler's godson was teaching among almost all Jews in the, in the Brooklyn, in Brooklyn College in the early 50s. Wow. A little detail that that ended up with. I'm not, not even well, sure I well. put it in the book. It's just a crazy little thing. Yeah, I would imagine there's all these sort of like side trips into history that you can't include yeah. in the book, but are, but are just fascinating. David, I wanted to just ask you one more off-topic question before we go. What are sure. you reading at the moment? Is it Maybe it's all related to the book, but what are you reading at the moment? Well, I, I was reading a, a, a strange biography of Putsi, but I finished that. I'm reading The Pole, um, which is J.M. Ketsi's, um most recent book, The South, South African Writer, which is supremely strange. It's about a Spanish woman in her 50s and a Polish pianist in his 70s and their very strange relationship. Um, and well, I could say I was my, one of my favorite writers, but I still can't pronounce his name properly. Um, he's just taken us in to readers of fans in so many different places. And this is, this is, another, this is another twist. The, the previous books, most recent books were Versions of the Life of Christ. He wrote, obviously, works centering around apartheid in South Africa many years ago. Anyway, that, that's, that's what I'm reading now. Thank you for asking. David, I want to thank you for talking with me today and wish you well on uh, of your upcoming book. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on. So nice talking to you. You're listening to Yale Radio WYBC. This is Brainerd Carey with the lives of the artists, architects, curators, and more. <laughs> 